Hi, everybody. This is Brett. It's Friday, August 21st. I can already tell my tone is terrible, and I have to record this right now. It's the only time that I have. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about what's going on. Are, are, would you describe yourself as a libertarian or in that ballpark? And do you ever feel like your, uh, your enthusiasm or your passion for that is waning? I want to give you a little hack. You should call the number 603-227-4000. That is the State of New Hampshire Department of Motor Vehicles. Just set a goal for yourself that within the next three hours, you'll be able to renew your driver's license. It doesn't matter uh, if you actually have a New Hampshire driver's license to renew or not, because it can't be done. It can't be done. I wish I knew this. At, uh, it's uh, it's one sixteen right now. This process started at 1030 this morning. The fields on their online form are not uh, set up correctly, so there's actually no way to do it. And that costs two and a half hours of productive time to find out. So I think that's why I sound so sad. I could hear it in my voice at the very beginning of the recording. But I'm not here to make you sad. That was all just about motivating your love of freedom. Again, 603-227, like the TV show, 4000. Uh, pretend you're trying to renew a New Hampshire driver's license online. Wait till you see what it does to your desire to live in a free society just three hours later. Sorry about sounding sad. Other than that, it's all great news here. The 11th installment of our bonus historical series, In Pursuit of Utopia, is out. I just released it today in the AV Club and Patreon, and it is a gem. It's me, Danny McCarthy. Kevin Cole joins us again, and Kevin is making such uh, valuable contributions to the series, as you are going to hear in this free bonus preview as soon as I'm done talking. I just want to have a little warning, a little disclaimer here at the beginning. We actually wind up sympathizing. It's not in the part of the show that you're going to hear. This whole show is over two hours. I'm going to give you the first 45 minutes. But we wind up sympathizing with an argument that the Fabians actually made that in order for really any kind of social, political, economic vision to take shape, you need a kind of upgraded individual that uh, you know 19th century Victorian Britain didn't have. Uh, so poverty is a huge feature of this conversation. And we reference um, you know, people who live in poverty but win the lottery. We also reference a very cynical Chappelle show skit from about 15 years ago on uh, reparations. So you're actually going to hear this stuff right at the beginning in the introduction to today's show. And I do understand that some people might find it problematic to hear Dave Chappelle's commentary about how reparations money would be misspent if it is not addressing the root of the problem. Hearing his commentary that would land him in 2020, probably in a re-education camp for saying these kinds of things, it's even more problematic channeled through me, Brett Vinat. I mean, look at me, right? But in the end, I decided to go for it. It's a provocative opening to the show. It is not a commentary on any specific racial group. It is more uh, speaking to what we've seen since the you know 1960s in this country anyway. Not only failed political responses to poverty, but really counterproductive and even catastrophic government responses. So I acknowledge that on the surface, that might seem a little upsetting for some people. But if you listen closely to the whole introduction, it should be fine. And of course, this is a show for people who listen closely. So thank you for being one of those people. Thank you to everybody who uh, supports the School Sucks podcast, either through the AV Club or Patreon. 
As always, we could really use your help right now. This membership program that we run where people make a modest monthly contribution and in exchange they get access to additional content that, uh, boy, I'll tell you, it's pretty time-tested at this point. We've been doing this for over a month. These university discussion groups that I run Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'm uh, this. it's prime time for me, right? I've had a lot of coffee. Uh, there's a lot of good prompts in these meetings. There's a lot of good uh, partners for discussion. But I listen back to these recordings because I try to, you know, cut them down and edit them before I, if, if, they're, if I think they're really good, I'll throw them up on Patreon or in the AV Club. And I say, geez, this is the kind of podcast I want to do. But I'm also being very cautious about what content we're putting out publicly. And there's a lot of private people participating in these meetings. So it's just bonus content for now. But for those of you who have asked for me to be more pissed off, you say, Brett, I really liked the show back in the old days when you were just all bent out of shape. Jump in to the sea of delights that is the University Weekly Discussion Groups by supporting us on Patreon or through the AV Club. If you want to get immediate access, go to patreon.com slash school sucks. And if you want access to this and every other piece of bonus content we've done back to 2010 would probably be the earliest one, schoolsucksproject.com slash AV. But for now, here is your free bonus for Friday. It is In Pursuit of Utopia, episode 11, Fabianism and Degeneration with Danny McCarthy and Kevin Cole. Up next month in this series, The British Empire. Also, my friend and the world champion of Facebook, Nathan Frazier, will be launching a new subscriber-only show next week, a monthly series, a once-a-month series focused around marketing and propaganda. And I have more great news that I'm just going to hint at right now. In the very near future, I'm going to be joining forces in a more permanent way with a number of other content creators in this future of education space. So you can probably think of who some of those people are. And that's something right now for which I could really use your encouragement and support through the most reliable and most win-win method of keeping the School Sucks Project going and growing, supporting us on a monthly basis. So patreon.com slash school sucks or school slash EV. You want to pay all at once. You want to pay with crypto. You want to get creative. You don't have a lot of money, but you've got some kind of skill and you want lifetime access to the AV club for doing some kind of like little project for me, a web project, a writing project. Email me. Let's talk. We'll see what happens. More great guests coming your way very soon, including some old favorites that I'm really excited about. If you are, if you are a supporter and you're not checking regularly what shows up in the Patreon feed, the two bonus shows before In Pursuit of Utopia also released this week. The first one is called What is Shadowgate? And the second one is called Why is QAnon? you want to hear those, they're both from those university discussion groups. And if you want to participate in these discussion groups, you have to be an all-access pass ticket holder. There's links for that in the show notes for today's episode as well. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Your Powerball number tonight is 17. Would-be winners fantasizing about how we'd spend that jackpot. But what happens when that dream turns into a nightmare? Jack won the nearly $315 million Powerball back in 2002. My wife had said she wished that she had torn the ticket up. Well, I wished that we had torn the ticket up, too. At the time, he said he wanted to use his $80 million take-home to make a difference. I can take this much money and do a lot of good with this much money right now. But entire fortune was allegedly gone within four years. And while he ended up giving some of his winnings to family members, lost most of it to thieves, drugs, and gambling. In the end, he was left with a million and a half dollars worth of debt. 
and a drug addiction that forced him into rehab. It certainly has been a curse to me. And it's happened to others. Their stash of mega cash squandered with stunning speed. Michael back on unemployment after partying away his jackpot. And Evelyn left living in a trailer after winning the lotto not once, but twice. Some winners have lost more than just their money. Our top story, as we all know, Congress recently approved paying over a trillion dollars to African Americans as reparations for slavery. Well, today, the first checks were sent out. Wendy Mullen is standing by live in Queens with more. Wendy? Thanks, Chuck. We're standing here in front of the Olympic liquor store in Queens where scores of African Americans have been lined up for hours. We spoke to a few of them earlier. Ladies, may we get a word? Hide the money, y'all. There's poor people around. <laughs> Put your broke ass. <laughs> Sir, now that you've got your check, do you plan on quitting your job driving this truck? Truck driving? I ain't no truck driver. I'm a janitor. Janitor? That's right, baby. I just bought this truck straight cash. And I got another cigarettes to last me and my family for the rest of my lives. I'm rich, beyond. So, Chuck, as you can see, it's been a pretty amazing day. Back to you. Wait, Wendy. Let me get this straight. Why aren't there any banks in the ghetto? If you take a look at the moral landscape in the 19th and early 20th century, you're going to see two concepts used repeatedly that have to some degree fallen out of modern usage. The first is decadence, and the second is degeneration. So these are ways of articulating a certain form of moral anxiety. And if you look at texts from, say, the Victorian period, they're absolutely central to how people saw what was going on in their society and how they saw and evaluated individuals. Now, in a sense, the fact that we don't use them so often makes them historically interesting. What is it for a moral concept to fall out of use in this way? Another reason that they're interesting is that, to some degree, they're making a comeback. Far-right or rightist movements from Bolsonaro's Brazil to parts of the Italian fascist scene are engaged in rehabilitating the notion of degeneration. So it's worth thinking about what it might mean, how it works. Another reason they're interesting philosophically is that they were of vital importance to certain philosophers, certain intellectuals, who we still need to understand today. Nietzsche, for example, makes frequent use of both degeneration and decadence when explaining his relationship to the idea of life. And it's not just philosophers. Darwin, for example, in his Descent of Man, talks about degeneration. And you see it all the way through a lot of Victorian biology. So we've got these reasons for understanding these concepts, the role they used to play, the role they might begin to play again, and their centrality to certain philosophical texts. But what exactly do they amount to? Well, let's take degeneration first. The basic idea is the explanation of social or moral trends in biological terms, often, typically, in pseudoscientific biological terms. So it's an attempt to apply a model taken from the natural sciences to explain social change. In doing so, individuals or groups are often seen as degenerate, and irredeemably so. You have a lot of uh, bacteria comparison. If there's a, a social force that is threatening to the larger group, just as a virus is threatening to the larger body. British historian Thomas Carlyle visited Ireland in 1849 and found a drunk country fallen down to sleep in the mud. 
The Irish, he wrote, were a brawling, unreasonable people, a human swinery, and a black, howling babble of superstitious savages. Clergyman Charles Kingsley was similarly shaken by his travels in Ireland. In 1860, he wrote to his wife, I am haunted by the human chimpanzees I saw along that hundred miles of horrible country. To see white chimpanzees is dreadful. If they were black, one would not see it so much, but their skins, except where tanned by exposure, are as white as ours. Two years later, the British magazine Punch proclaimed the Irish as the missing link between man and simian. A gulf certainly does appear to yawn between the gorilla and the negro. The woods and wilds of Africa do not exhibit an example of any intermediate animal. But in this, as in many other cases, philosophers go vainly searching abroad for that which they could readily find if they sought for it at home. A creature manifestly between the gorilla and the negro is to be met with in some of the lowest districts of London and Liverpool by adventurous explorers. It comes from Ireland, whence it has contrived to migrate. It belongs, in fact, to a tribe of Irish savages, the lowest species of Irish Yahoo. When conversing with its kind, it talks a sort of gibberish. It is, moreover, a climbing animal, and may sometimes be seen ascending a ladder laden with a hod of bricks. Also, in 1862, the ethnologist John Beddow published his Indexes of Negrescence, which measured the blackness of Europeans. Scoring lowest were the industrious, restrained, and superior Anglo-Saxons. Those with the highest scores were the Celts of Ireland, who Beddow described in bodily, sensual, and animalistic terms. The Celtic leg and foot is usually well-developed, thigh long in proportion, instep high, ankle well-shapen and of moderate size. The step is very elastic and rather springy. Another proponent of the theory of natural Irish inferiority was James Anthony Froude, a professor of history at Oxford University. He described the Irish country folk as more like squalid apes than human beings. The wild Irish were unstable as water, while the English exemplified order and self-control. And of course the classic example of this kind of thinking you find in Germany under the Third Reich. So if you think of the exhibition Degenerate Art, that's an attempt to explain and to present certain artistic modernist trends as both degenerate aesthetically and degenerate racially and degenerate socially. Now, at this point you might be thinking, well, why should we be interested in this concept? It's clearly just an artifact of uh, a deeply unpleasant form of racism. But things are more complex than that. So one reason is the very widespread nature of its use. So it's not just figures on the right. Someone like Tressel, for example, in his Ragged Trousers Philanthropists, also makes frequent use of the notion of degeneration. And I mentioned Darwin too. So we need to see it as a part of a broader uh, set of social, cultural, intellectual trends in the period. The idea that you can explain moral change by appeal to a kind of biological paradigm, by the idea of falling away from a certain ideal type of the species.
And that's frequently supplemented with worries about population growth, urbanization, the decline of the health of the population. Welcome to In Pursuit of Utopia, number 11, uh, joined by Danny McCarthy, as always. Hey, Danny. Hello, Brett. And Kevin Cole is back with us once again. Hey, Kevin. Hey, guys. So we felt like there were some loose ends to tie up with the Fabians. I think this included maybe taking a, you know, like a fair and honest look at the actual ills of society they were trying to respond to, comparing that to the realities that shook out as a result of the Fabian goal. Then I, I guess to continue or look a little bit deeper, I know we talked about this last time at what their their legacy was, right? So where would you like to start? Because, oh man, you sent us that Victorian web resource and that has some interesting rabbit holes and I went down quite a few of them all the way to the, to what was it called? The Water Babies? Does that ring a bell? Charles Kingsley's The Water Babies? I didn't find that part of the website. Okay, no, I didn't do that. Goes beyond either of your knowledge. Uh, that's uh, that's my week on the Victorian web. Uh, so as, well, we'll get to that. We don't have to jump right into that uh, right away. Yeah. So, what were you hoping we would do with that resource, though, Danny? The Victorian web. So I just wanted a, a resource to be available for everyone to just see what the world in England would have looked like in the time period that the Fabians were working. I think it's important, as we've discussed many times on this show, to understand the context within which these utopians are working, because it's not occurring in a vacuum. These aren't philosophies that just pop out of the ground fully formed, but they develop in response to conditions. Uh, And many of these conditions that they're responding to are indeed things that are worth responding to and should be changed. And there are certainly things in our world, obviously, that we would like to change. And uh, I just think it's a useful exercise for anybody, no matter what your political affiliation is or lack thereof, um, to just be able to empathize and see where anyone's coming from, whether you agree with them or not, you can at least appreciate the conditions that they were responding to. And perhaps you'll disagree with their actual responses to those conditions, but at the very least, you can relate on some sort of human level as to, you know, common problems requiring a solution. So that was a good resource because it's such a well-rounded, holistic picture of the Victorian era. So you can, you know, for anyone who's interested, who's listening to this, uh, Victorian Web is the the name of the website. And uh, it's just got like hundreds, it's got to be hundreds or thousands of articles on pretty much everything you can imagine regarding Victorian England. And so it just paints this picture of, you know, a a society thoroughly different from our own. And, you know, when we're considering a political utopian movement that arose in that context, it would be useful for us modern people with our modern sentiments to go back and look at the lens through which contemporaries would have viewed Fabianism rather than with our own biased retrospective lens. Absolutely. And I I, I think we can also, it's not exactly an alien world either. Uh, There's some interesting overlap 
I think if we've studied history, like the period in Germany before the rise of the Nazis, or even a lot of the social and political upheavals in this country over the last five years in the advent of Donald Trump and the rise of the alt-right, there was a kind of plague throughout the 18th century in England and around the world, this fear of what they called degeneration. Um, and there's a, a whole theory that goes around this degeneration theory. So there, there was, uh, you know, a Third Reich response to this in the Weimar Republic uh, that our society is filled with degenerates, you know, men who want to wear dresses and have alternative sexual lifestyles and a shitty art movement to go with it. Obviously, in the United States, it's postmodernism, transgenderism, um, all of these things that. Uh, you know, the alt-right claim to be responsibly combating through their kind of agenda or outreach. Uh, but this was very much, it, it's a very interesting container to realize that the Fabians weren't people who like in the 1880s or the 1890s went, oh, you know what? We should do like eugenics. We should do like negative eugenics and positive eugenics. Like what an idea. It was to whatever degree they they had a design for that or policies for that, that they tried to push into actual practice through the British government, it, it was all sort of motivated by, as one, there was a book called Degeneration Culture and the Novel, which looked at like the literary attempts to address this. Uh, I found this on Victorian web. It was by William Greenslade. And he described it as a loose assemblage of beliefs, which can be marked out as degenerationism. The idea of degeneration, he argues, was an important resource of myth for the post-Darwinian world. Its manifestations informed popular culture on manifold levels, even before the 1880s, which Greenslade takes as the starting point for his analysis. So this is like even, you know, Darwin happens in the middle of this, you could say but certainly exacerbates a lot of the fears of degeneration, which is exactly what it sounds like. I think it was a biological theory then applied to man. And obviously uh, the chief target was poor people who, you know, you mentioned Malthus to us before we started recording. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to him in a minute, but he also had some pretty <laughs> dire observations about what the poor people were doing and what the implications of that would be for all of society. And that was, that was the early 1800s, right? Malthus? Yeah. Yeah. Like turn of the century, pretty much. From the 17th century, population growth in England and other parts of Europe accelerated due to increases in agricultural production as well as increasing medical knowledge and technological innovation linked to the Industrial Revolution, but more important, European expansion overseas. European powers were importing food and resources from other parts of the world that were in short supply at home and exported part of the excess population to the colonies. However, threat of food shortages, even famine, was still a fact of life for most Europeans. In fact, population growth drove people to the margins of subsistence, leading to intolerable social conditions, in particular in the growing industrial cities of Britain. A lack of knowledge about hygiene led to epidemic disease and high mortality. 
However, birth rates still outstripped death rates despite these problems. But there was another development, the age of reason, often called the Enlightenment. Thinkers and scientists across Europe developed ideas about social justice, poverty relief and sanitation. In short, these people believed in progress or the improvement of the living conditions for all. Thomas Malthus was a political economist and enlightenment thinker who observed a growing population with increasing concern. To explain poverty and famine, he wrote a famous essay at the end of the 18th century entitled An Essay on the Principle of Population. In good enlightenment fashion, he was trying to find natural laws similar to Newton's law of gravity that could explain the continuing existence of poverty in the world. According to Malthus, population tends to increase faster than the supply of food available for its needs. Whenever a gain occurs in food production, it results in higher population growth. Over time, population growth will exceed the increase in agricultural production and population will crash due to food shortages. The mathematical basis of this idea is the principle that the population is growing in a geometrical rate 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, etc. The food supply, on the other hand, increases only in an arithmetical fashion 2, 4, 6, 8, etc leaving an increasing deficit in food produced and mouth to be fed. Maltus concluded that the power of population is indefinitely greater than the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man. In short, Maltus' theory predicts that when food production increases over time to meet demand, the population will grow faster and exceed the food or resource producing capacity and the growth is checked in the end by famine, disease and war something that is called a Malthusian crisis. However, Maltus recognized that technological development and better agricultural techniques could push up the ceiling of population and delay the point of crisis. But what goes up must come down, and inevitably population growth will outstrip technological-driven food production and crash. Malthus' theory contradicted the optimistic belief prevailing in the early 19th century that a society's fertility would lead to economic progress. Malthus' theory won supporters and has been used as an argument against efforts to better the condition of the poor. During the 20th century, environmentalists used Malthus' argument to stress that the earth cannot sustain too many people and that resources will run out unless population growth is brought under control. Famous examples are the population bomb written by Paul Ehrlich and the report for the Club of Rome Limits to Growth. The latter was written by a team of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Both works predicted disaster for humanity due to rapid population growth outstripping resource supply. Ehrlich made a grim prediction that in the 1970s and 80s hundreds of millions of people were starved to death in spite of any crash program embarked upon now. Both books urged that radical action was needed to limit overpopulation. Limits to growth and the population bomb rekindled Malthus' theory in the 20th century and a debate whether Malthus was right or wrong. Up till the present day it seems that history proved Ehrlich and other doomsayers wrong since the mass starvations predicted for the latter quarter of the 20th century never occurred. 
The reasons for this are multiple, but one of the important factors that Maltus could not have foreseen was the demographic transition. The demographic transition is a shift in population development from a situation of high birth rates and high mortality during the pre-industrial age to a new situation with low birth rates and low mortality during the post-industrial age. The demographic transition is attributed to a more affluent and better educated population that has access to contraceptives. More importantly, Maltus and the 20th century authors mentioned before failed to account for improvements in technology such as the use of fertilizers, pesticides and mechanization. These were made possible with cheap, readily available energy contained in fossil fuels, which unleashed the greatest increase in food production the world has ever seen, enabling Earth population to increase sevenfold since Maltus' day. The growth of food production outstripped the rates of population growth. However, there are signs that Maltus' conclusions were not entirely wrong and that the increase in food production is slowing. In the first decade of the 21st century, food prices increased quite rapidly. Between 2005 and the summer of 2008, the prices of wheat and corn tripled, and the price of rice increased fivefold. This led to food riots in nearly two dozen countries, mainly in the developing world. But unlike previous shocks driven by short-term local or regional food shortages, this price spike came in a year when the world's farmers reaped a record grain crop. Why then high food prices? This time, the high prices were a symptom of a larger problem within the worldwide food web, one that's not going away anytime soon. For most of the first decade of the 21st century, the world has been consuming more food than has been produced. After years of drawing down stockpiles, in 2007 the world saw global grain reserves fall to 60 days of global consumption, the second lowest on record at that time. Agricultural productivity growth has fallen over the past few decades and it is at present only 1-2% a year and is expected to decline further in coming decades. This means that it could become too low to meet population growth and increasing demand. This leads us inevitably back to Maltus. His idea that populations have to live within their resource base and that the capacity of society to increase resources from that base is ultimately limited. And this is not far-fetched, as recent developments have suggested. In the end, it seems there has to be a balance between population and resources. Perhaps somewhere deep in a script in Bath Abbey, Maltus is quietly wagging his bony finger and mumbling, I told you so. So, yeah, I'll just throw that out there. I uh, went down, you know, uh, a breadcrumb trail of uh, degeneration and found lots of examples of it. I, I mentioned the water babies. Uh, there was another Wilkie Collins, uh, Man and Wife, which was a novel. But there, there are lots of references to it, especially in the literature of the time uh, on Victorian web. So, well, okay, we've got to hear about these water babies. We can't go any further. What's uh, going on I'm with the water babies? No, if I'm ready to get into to the water babies. Okay, you know, all right. <laughs> I, I have got a great cartoon. Unfortunately, I'm looking at it on another computer. 
uh, I would screen share it with you. It'll it'll certainly wind up in the show notes. It, Excellent. It, a cartoon from 1881, and it's called Man is But a Worm. And it shows this sort of uh, evolutionary line of man becoming a worm and then, you know, becoming this mm -hmm. worm growing legs and walking on land and then becoming a kind of monkey, then becoming like a prehistoric man, then becoming a British gentleman, and then eventually evolving all the way to Charles Darwin himself. Um, <laughs> and it's, it kind of sets the tone for what uh, Kingsley's uh, the Water Babies is, which followed this cartoon by about five years, where it's sort of a lampoon of of Darwin's ideas and speaks to or, or tries to address that it's absurd to reduce humanity to anatomy. Um, which, I mean, if you think about it, like we, we, we can very easily think about ourselves in uh, even even down to like you know neurology in very like scientific or specifically biological terms today, but that was more of a a novel proposition back then to think to think about the human being as just another thing to be studied in the world of biology. Uh, but it deals a lot with with concepts of um, of degeneration. This <laughs> is a um, a group of uh, a, a special race of humans in the story called the do as you likes and they are so idle and they've grown so stupid that they barely even know how to talk anymore and the book warns they will be apes very soon mm -hmm. uh, and the main character tom is referred to early on in the book as a little black ape so danny you're probably hearing some echoes of like thaddeus russell stuff now yes uh, but but that's about you know emphasizing his risk of degeneracy right to be to be a little black so it was just interesting that it was such a pervasive idea that it became like a literary theme in several different places across several different genres of literature at the time well right it wasn't something that occurred in a vacuum this new secularization it was it wasn't just man as reduced to anatomy or the scientific process is applied to something as big as or as meaningful as what is life. It was that thrown into a tremendously religious Christian world that already had, I mean, a hundred years earlier, pretty much consensus view was that the earth was 6,000 years old. And now like just in the span of just like two or three generations, that's all fundamentally changed, not in the strange annals of Oxford and Cambridge, but on the street. That's tremendously traumatic for a society, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, I found it very fascinating that that you dove in with the uh, degeneration uh, degeneration theory because that's something that that I also focused on uh, and I've focused on in some of my previous work. the The ideas were largely like macrocosmic and microcosmic, like they were applying the degeneration idea uh, to you know, the public uh, within these po positive eugenics ideas, looking at overcrowding. I mean, generally cities themselves were thought of this way. And especially in a place that's as small as, as England, yeah, uh, you know, uh, where you don't have a lot of uh, opportunity for renewal because uh, of the ownership and the, the systems that led to it. Um, so also on top of that, the aristocracy itself was often like incestuous and like seen as like idle and decadent. And they felt like they were, you know, their, their artwork and uh, their culture was in the decline. Um, and, and it was uh, also just this kind of like general middle class uh, loathing of the poor, 
you know, cause they had like worked themselves up and they're looking back and there's this loathing of the poor. So it was like a, uh, a degeneration on the national scale as well. And I put this in a paper I wrote called the ideal arrangement of roads in the organic unity of empire. And I'm just wanted to read a section from it. Cause I think it kind of sums it up uh, from the geopolitical standpoint and how these ideas went into, you know, from, from Malthus with his ideas that he expounded for the East India company, uh, putting forth the idea that, you know, eventually we would outstrip our ability to uh, maintain ourselves, uh, you know, and then there are these competing theories with that, like Buckminster Fuller, who felt that like production would allow for that to be nullified, like it, that, that it was essentially a Malthusian fallacy. It's a it's a failure of imagination to see the world for what it is, because your mind is stuck within this feudalistic land ownership, uh, you know, resource management structure uh, that, that, you know, largely gave birth to the ideas of the, the Industrial Revolution. But so I put it this way. I said, by the late late 1800s, there was a growing concern amongst the imperialist politicians and power players that the relationship between the British Empire and its self-governing parts had grown too distant and the greater central authority in England was needed. This occurred among strong opposition to the little Englander politicians that wished to stop the expansion of empire, who were also critical of the Second Boer War led by Rhodes and the Milner Group who were heavily influenced by these Fabian ideas of secrecy and control of society and game planning. This emerging imperial scheme was also partially fueled by the fears of degeneration and racial decline prevalent during the late Victorian era, influenced partly by Charles Darwin's expression of evolution, which Rhodes embraced as the embodiment of future progress and its relationship to natural selection. This thinking was that if an individual could regress and degenerate physically and even intellectually, so too could whole nations and empires. And this fear of degeneration not only played an important role in the development of new imperial strategies, it was also a factor in the creation of the pseudoscience of eugenics. And this is where they started applying positive eugenics. And we found that in last episode in the attempts to humanize someone like George Bernard Shaw, uh, <laughs> you know, saying basically, you know, why don't you just die? Uh, as well as they, they use this uh, same philosophy in the establishment of and implementation of compulsory education in the 19th century. This is where the Education Act of, of 1870 comes through with uh, Matthew Arnold. This was the idea that they were, they were importing this idea of the Bill Dung or the best culture or the best of what has been thought and said that is the normative legacy of the Trivium and liberal, uh, liberal arts education system. And this is where, where all of this uh, goes back to. And, and you found some fascinating references to how it is used in, in uh, literature. I mean, look at H.G. Wells' uh, Time Machine. Uh, yes. This whole, you know, yes. yeah. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and like, what's yes. that? The people underground, I forget what they're called, but definitely, the, yeah, you have the human race actually splitting into two distinct species. Yeah. Whether you went backwards or forward, there was a degeneracy. And so like, and, and what he's kind of talking about there that's fascinating also is his, his relationship, his constant is this technological merging of man and machine. He's become so dependent upon this industrial, you know, this industrial idea where he pushes the levers and pulls the switches. And this is the, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a reference to the industrial revolution and their, their ideas of what was going to push them forward. Um, Also, the 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 role of you know uh industrial competitiveness they felt that this would you know that poverty in general was going to cause the weakening of the health of the entire nation and and with that would fall the british empire and so they became so uh so imbued with these like kind of neoplatonic ideals of what society could be 
that they viewed it as that they had already fallen through those ranks. But it's really it's it's a mind it's a mind game of sorts because it's it's limited by you know the the things that they take in. Um, so I, I found that ex- extremely fascinating how how the role of degeneration uh, played into that. And uh, I you know I'll pass it I'll pass it over. But I, I I think the the macrocosmic and microcosmic level of that is this is the logic in which they use to push the empire. I mean, they, they, they brought, you know, a Fabian magazine to the United States and they contacted, you know, these religious scholars, Walter Rosenbach and a bunch of other people and, and, and basically started pushing this, this idea of fixing society and fixing the poverty as a social gospel. This is where you get the idea of the social gospel and building the kingdom of God on earth. Like they, they honestly believed that this collect, this kind of collectivism uh, when buttressed with like a religious ideology would, would lead to that collectivization of society because people would just accept it as what is necessary. It's like, it's like Dewey's idea of the new individualism, which is like certainly channeled, very critically through Gatto in the underground history. But you know, he talks about that. That very idea is about to... And, and Dewey ultimately, I think, was a secular humanist. But perfect echoes. Like his statements of that, the quotes from Dewey about bringing about this new kingdom of God, perfect echoes of what of what you just said. So, and there is like a, a sort of a religious concept of like resurrection here as well. I mean, not exactly, but I think the Fabians called it moral regeneration. Yes. Right. That was a term that they used. And, uh, you know, they were kind of like maybe proto Dave Asprey's, right? Like upgrade, upgrade yourself. Like Dewey's new individualism was like better people are the building blocks of this utopia that we imagine. If, if, if I'm remembering it correctly. And it's the same idea as like you need upgraded individuals to be smart enough, which is exactly, it's funny. It's kind of like what the alt-right says about national socialism. It's like, yeah, it'd be, it would work fine if we were just all on the same page, uh, if we just had homogeneity in society. Uh, and, you know, race is a good place to start with that. So it, this, this standardization uh, of the population as a prerequisite Jeez, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. And that that kind of structure has the appearance of being from the ground up when it's presented in that way. It's like, oh, well, you know, if the individuals were good, then society would be good. And it seems like that's something that could happen organically. But the problem always winds up being with these kinds of systems is that, like you said, it's if only the individuals were good and in conformity to this ideal that we on high have proscribed for them then it'll all work out. So it really is this top-down, the actual philosophy and planning is coming from a top-down subset of philosopher kings, for lack of a better term. But it has the the almost propagandistic appearance of, of animating the average person and saying, wow, I'm part of a movement and it's grassroots and we can all get involved, and, you know? Yeah, and while I still think it's sick and it's playing God and it's one of the reasons why it's it's like hard to engage in questions about, you know, is the moral questions about what Malthus actually says and what he proposes, because you almost have to step into a role of playing God to do it. There is kind of like a, I don't know, like a purity or a naivete to it that is better than just, um, you know, a purely authoritarian attempts to 
you know, like it, we were before we started, we spent a half an hour talking about this documentary that's circulating right now and the, the rise of Internet based influence operations in the last 15 years where, you know, the government used to have to fly along and drop out little leaflets <laughs> to people, and they have a much more sophisticated and higher leverage system for doing those things. And it's not just governments, right? I mean, a lot of this power is vested with corporations today. Uh, so uh, the the leverage they have through information technology uh, to do this is, I, I would say, almost more sinister because it seems like in many cases, and maybe it's not uniform across the board with everyone who is a Fabian, like, I, I don't know, I have a hard time picturing like Shaw buying into this idea. But it's like, yeah, let's actually upgrade people. I, I believe Dewey believed it. If you look at the work that Dewey, now Dewey's connection with the Fabians is loose, if not nothing. I, I mean, I don't even know if he's... No, you're dead on. You're actually dead on with what you said earlier on new individualism. They both... The, 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 the idea of the new individualism was actually first expounded by Graham Wallace of oh. the Fabian Society. Like, And then John Dewey like concurred with a lot of these ideas. And like basically, they, they both agreed that this needed... These ideas all needed to be merged into a new ideal, like a new individualism. Like, And this, is, this goes to uh, the philosophy of uh, you know, realism or idealism, like systems creation, uh, neoplatonic thinking, right. uh, the idea that whatever works is whatever's best. And what they were trying to combat in this is the fact that, you know, uh, the, the system in the United States was largely a uh, grammatical uh, society. Like we were, we were the grammarians because we were nominalists. We were expressing not nominalism, like on the out fringes of like Stuart Chase or somebody like that, who's saying that, that, uh, that, that all words don't necessarily pertain, pertain to things not that there's something to that but like and not on the outskirts of it of like this this object or this thing does not exist in reality and we're all in a matrix or something like that but but our our very society was set up as a a nominal a, a linguistic nominalistic government like when, when you create a government that that you know divorces the ideas of having to have a specific ideology of specific religion uh being able to speak freely these things like this was an affront to not only to it was you know an affront to most of history um and and you can trace like uh, over time the the periods of time in which grammar logic and rhetoric were more dominant within societies and 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 John Dewey believed in systems theory outright he believed that whatever works is what we need to do whereas like people that are expounding freedom would probably take a a grammatical or poetic uh, view of this, like where where each of us has our own ability to uh, spin generalizations, which is what we do when we speak uh, to create like a poetry to build our realities and to come to understandings. These guys were trying to impose philosophy, like because they believed that there were ideal forms or ideal standards that would make society work the best because they're, you know, they're super idealists that or in, in some instances, realists. And it's not to like put it all in a negative context, because there were actually social ills in society. Like, you know, what's happened over time is that the managerial class or these new mandarins, these people that control societies are able to maintain that because of a, a knowledge gap or a kind of a third party perspective that they're instilled with. So you're able to look at it like from a third party perspective, you can see it's, you know, if you go to mediate somebody else's problems, it's always, it's a lot easier than doing so on some of your own problems a lot of the time, because you're not involved in the situation. And so what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that there was a concerted effort 
into introduce these ideas into the United States because we had always had this at least allusion to a pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, rugged individualism, uh, you know, stay out of uh, the other foreign entanglements, as said within George Washington's farewell address. And I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent there, but but your your idea of new individualism that you put to Dewey, this is the exact same thing that was being put forth by Graham Wallace. And if you look at John Dewey's ligatures to this through the New School of Social Research, through the Glenmore Study Group, see Thomas Davidson, who founded this Fellowship of the New Life, used to have John Dewey over, you know, like they'd get together and they they had a, a concord, they'd get together and discuss philosophy and Hegel and Aristotle, all these guys knew each other. And so then when he goes over and creates the Fellowship of the New Life that becomes the Fabian Society, the only distinction in that is that that Thomas Davidson was actually an individualist and the, Fa- the Fabians that fell off from that, they became collectivists because they believed that the only way that you would affect these change over time would be, and, and to make it stick is to change law. Like they would attack law within their society. And then eventually they would, they saw the United States as easy to do because if you could get established precedent in law, then you could change the, the way the constitution and the declaration of independence and these things are interpreted, especially if there were practical realities that would make that palatable to people. You know, I don't yeah. think you could convince most people today, you know, I mean, every group, not just the the liberals or the utopians or the Republicans, every group faces this uh, within this country, this problem, whether you're an anarchist, voluntarist or whoever, you face this problem that the majority of people, if given the choice, are probably going to keep Social Security. Like they're not going to see a reason to uh, undo their own, you know, safety nets and things like that. The idea that you're going to be able to come to a, a consensus that's going to allow your thing to be overthrown, that doesn't that necessitate Fabianism, no matter what strategy you're taking? Like, uh, yeah. 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 Like, you know, not Fabian socialism, but it necessitates the strategy of trying to do this over time. It's not like we can flip a switch tomorrow and everybody has the idea of cognitive liberty and liberty in their head. And we're all going to throw off the things that make us dependent to society and and stop paying. You know, it's it's never happened that way. Um, And you could argue that, like, we've never had the ability to all talk and you know tweet at anybody in real time but i think that that enhances the problem of nominalism and i think that's what we see going on right now with this coronavirus thing is that that there's so many ideologies at work and there's no central hub of information because we don't like the only thing that we agree upon is empiricism you know like in a, in a, like we deduce from the empirical and then see if it's replicatable and then make decisions based on that but in a country that believes you know, on one hand, there's people that believe that you could be protected from Corona from Jesus's being bathed in Jesus's blood, metaphorically, and it won't affect me because I believe this, or it won't affect me because I wear this specific mask, or I have this technology. It's a, there's no consensus. We have no mechanism for that. And what's that, what that's normally driven by is leadership, or at least the illusion of leadership, somebody to stand up and expound Plato's noble lie about it in a way that is, uh, you know, uh, extemporaneously uh, uh, accepted and intellectual, but we have somebody who said a varying degree of this is a hoax and all this stuff. So I'm sorry to go off on a tangent there, but I really do think it relates uh, as a whole as to like why we're in the in the, in the situation we're in, whether or not it comes from a, a place of degeneracy or 
like that things can be regenerated. I think these are often like religious and neoplatonic ideas that win out by being the most popular. Is it fair to like, because Danny kind of laid it out as looking at the actual plights in society that the Fabians were responding to and then comparing that to like how a lot of their goals and actions, actions took shape. So to say that there was this, like I said, more pure than internet influence campaigns of the last 15 years, where you basically just have an operation to hijack the space between stimulus and response for people and occupy it. So you're, you're, you're actually trying to produce automatons instead of, and obviously this would be more akin to things that you see, like everybody in Cuba learns how to read or everybody in North Korea gets a TV. It's not so you can think right? It's not about thinking, right? It's just that you can have the minimal level of literacy to be malleable and controllable. But there was, there did seem to be something compared to that that was more pure in the original intentions there. Maybe it was a part of Dewey, like you look at all the work Dewey did in education, uh, but then it kind of contrasts to like, you know, his support of World War One, going like, shit, that's maybe a way to speed some of my my stuff up. You know, this gets everybody on the same page for sure. So, uh, and yeah, obviously somebody's um, ideas and viewpoints are going to change over, you know, the, I mean, John Dewey, we're talking 60 years of, you know, public intellectual activity. Um, so yeah, I thought, I thought that was interesting, but in practical terms, they would become more collectivist, even if like the upgraded individual was, was a starting point. That idea kind of gets worn down by reality pretty fast, I bet. Yes. Hey, thank you for taking the time to listen to this preview. There is one hour and 15 minutes remaining if you want to hear the rest. Uh, in order to do that, please support this show. Go to patreon.com slash school sucks and sign up to contribute $1 per content item. Or you can go to schoolsucksproject.com slash AV. Choose the $8 a month option. And give me 24 hours for that one. But thank you so much. Thank you in advance for your support, future supporter. You will be part of the reason why this show exists after all this time and is still going strong. Thanks. Thanks.